Welcome to the podcast, Bringing Truth to Life, where we talk about what the scriptures say that can help you get unstuck from the thorny issues of life and encourage you to live the life you've been wanting to live with Christ. Our speaker today is Henry Clay, and we're in a series called A Man After God's Own Heart on the life of King David from the Old Testament. God called him a man after his own heart, but we see that he was far from perfect. What was it about this man that God liked so much? This series looks at David's environment, his experiences, and his responses to try to discover how we can live a life that brings delight to God's heart. Well, welcome to our continuing series on the life of David, a man after God's own heart. I think this is the eighth, eighth class. And we're going to be in 2 Samuel 6 today. And the title is Reigning on the Parade in 2 Samuel 6. But why would we do a study of the life of David? It's not just that we that he's an important biblical character or that he was a king or that he was a shepherd or that he killed Goliath. It's, uh, we're particularly taking a look at it. Um, <coughs> Because God says, this is the kind of person I relate to. You know, there's some people you have kind of have a chemistry with, and some people it's like you have an allergic reaction to. And you think, I don't know if it's me or if it's them. You tend to think it's them. But uh, when God says, I have a chemistry with this particular person, that there, it, it, he's communicating there's, there's something or some things about this person that puts us in alignment and gives us intimacy. And we want to be in alignment and in intimacy with the most important person in the whole universe, which is God. And so we're, we're going step by step through David's life, seeing what can we discover that is perhaps why God would say that. that I have, he said, I've looked, and he says, I have found a man after my own heart. And so we're in the sixth chapter of 2 Samuel, and the last time we talked about when they brought Uzzah, when, when they were bringing up the ark to Jerusalem, and Uzzah touched the ark, reached out and touched the ark, and died. And if you want to listen to that talk, uh, the title of that one was CSI Jerusalem, because we did a, a theological analysis. Why did he die? I mean, isn't that a little bit over the top? I mean, maybe a slap on the hand, maybe a couple of whips on the back, you know, but electrocution seems a little heavy for touching something you shouldn't have touched. I mean, your kids would have been long gone dead by this time <laughs> if you were that strict. Uh, I told you not to touch that. So plug his finger in the outlet. Okay, next. So David was scared. He was mad. Have you ever gotten mad at God? Why did you do that? And uh, but David went back then and studied the Bible and realized, oh, that's why that happened. And that's what we looked at last time. So after looking at the scripture, he realized, well, there is a right and a wrong way to do it. And so they go back to bring, bring the ark in this time. So let's pick up in 2 Samuel 6.14. And as they're bringing the ark in to Jerusalem, uh, it says, David wearing a linen ephod, which is sort of a priestly garment, but not something normally a king would wear, danced before the Lord with all his might. While he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets, 
As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, or Michelle, I guess would be our uh, modern-day translation of that, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window, and she was uh, his wife. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord. And then he he blesses the people and gives out gifts. I mean, it's a tremendous time of celebration. Verse 20, when David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. Did you ever know sarcasm was in the Bible? (laughs) Disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Well, let's pick up a few details and then then see what we can get out of this. What was the ark? Carried the rules. What what form were these rules in? Okay, so it had the, the the tablets with the Ten Commandments. And what else was in the box? The, the jar of manna, uh, a jar of manna, not wasn't all the manna, and the Aaron's staff that had budded. And what did the ark sort of symbolize, or what did they associate with the ark? Was it a, an image of God? It symbolized the presence of God. So it's an interesting thing. You see, they were, they were monotheists, but they weren't just monotheists. They were not idolaters. In other words, they didn't make some sort of a stone or metal image that represented their deity. But they did have a point of reference, a focal point, a reminder. When you tie a string around your finger to remember to feed the cat. Well, the string doesn't represent the cat, doesn't represent the food, uh, or isn't, isn't a picture of that. But it's a reminder of that you need to feed the cat. And so the ark was a reminder of God's faithfulness, of God's reality, that he speaks that he commands, that he provides, that he works through godly leadership. So that's the ark. Bringing in the ark was, in a sense, inviting God to be to take up residence in in Jerusalem. And this was three thousand years ago. The story we're looking at today. I mean, it would be almost like if we still had a, the whole Mayflower that brought the pilgrims over, and there was going to be this big thing because it's been down in I don't know wherever they were keeping it, say North Carolina, and said, we're going to bring it up to Washington, D.C., and we've got this special place for it. And, you know, the, the Mayflower was it's like 400 years old or something. So it's a real old thing. At this time, the ark was about 450 years old. So they'd had it a long time. So it's definitely an antique and tremendous heritage. And David, of course, was the, was the very second king after King Saul, and he is considered to be the greatest ki- king that Israel ever had. And Michael, uh, or Michelle, would be our English way of saying a, a female version of Michael, but uh, she was connected to both dynasties. She was the one of the daughters of Saul, and so she was the 
uh, his second daughter, and she was the second king's first wife. And after David killed Goliath, she had a crush on him, probably with about 400 other ladies. <laughs> Strong, handsome, giant killer, what's not to like? He's also sensitive, likes music. And Saul gave her to David in marriage. And she, at one point, Saul, when Saul's attitude had gotten really bad about David and, and sent people to murder him, Michael helped him escape and even lied and said, oh, he's just indisposed, he's sick, you know, and they finally come in. And So it was really because of Michael at one point that David's life was saved. So we don't want to point, say that everything was bad about Michael. I'm sure she was very sincere in many, many things. But in this particular story, we see a tremendous contrast between these two people, between David and Michael, and all over the same event. So that's kind of what we want to to look at right now. So the very first thing we're noticing in verse 16 is it says, she watched from the window. Now where's everybody else? They're out in the street. So the very first thing is feet. But the first thing we notice about Michael in this situation was she didn't participate. I mean, what was she doing up there? This was the maybe the most important day in her whole lifetime, for her, for her husband, for the city, for the nation, and she didn't go. I'm sure she had her reasons. Maybe she wasn't feeling good that day. Maybe she was tired. Maybe she hadn't slept well the night before. Maybe, well, she didn't have any kids, so we can't blame it on that. You know, David didn't have to go. He could have delegated it. He was the king. So we just want you all to take care of this, make it a really nice time and everything, and we'll be watching from the balcony, as a royal couple should. Now, there's another point in David's life where he didn't go out where he was supposed to go. When was that? When he didn't go to war. 2 Samuel 11 says, at the time when kings go out to war, can you imagine that you have your yearly calendar scheduled? It says it's September, wartime. You know, who are we going to fight? We're working on that. We'll let you know, but we're heading out tomorrow. <laughs> and so they had, in springtime, was, was wartime. Uh, aren't you glad we just do football and baseball instead of um, beating each other up and shooting each other every spring? So, uh, of course, if you're the fans, maybe in England, they do that too. But it says David didn't go out to battle, and that's when he fell into trouble with Bathsheba. You know, just hanging around but not participating in what he was supposed to do. He remained in Jerusalem. And I think this is a picture also for us. Participation is something, you know, we live in a God, the gospel of grace. It's not as though you have to do everything, but there are times when your feet aren't going where they ought to be going. Where is it that you maybe have fallen back in your participation? It could be in terms of your meeting with God each day. You have good intentions, it's just, and you used to do it, but it's gotten spotty or it doesn't even happen at all. I talked to a minister the other day, and he's been a minister for like 30, 40 years, and I said, well, what do you do to meet with the Lord? And he's a close friend, so I mean, I wouldn't just ask that of anybody, any minister. But uh, he said, well, I try to read my Bible 15 minutes each morning. And I thought, is that really going to be enough to sustain 
the ministry of someone who's supposedly full-time in the ministry, 15 minutes in the morning to read his Bible a little bit. Church attendance. Growing up in my family, our family would sort of take the summer off. And so very faithful during the year, once a week, not twice, once a week, and then in the summer, take the summer off. Bible study. Being involved in a small group. You get older, you get kids, your life gets busy, you think, oh, well, maybe I won't do that this time. But are you going to be more like David, who is down in the streets, bringing in the ark, or, or more like Michael, who was just standing up there looking from afar? There are also, when you think about your feet, there are also some places you go you shouldn't be going. So it's not just not going where you should be going, it's going some places where you shouldn't be going as far as on the internet or in certain relationships. And you realize, I've, I've kind of crossed a line, and uh, this is the wrong direction. Your feet can get you in a lot of trouble. You get lazy, you get comfortable, you just start living for yourself. You've got perfectly good excuses. It's not so much that. We labor for years developing high-quality excuses because we don't want to feel bad about ourselves. Uh, we just don't want to go. <laughs> but a lot of times we stop participating in things we should, not because we've discerned God's will. And in fact, we haven't even asked him. We just think, well, what do I want to do? I find it as we invite people to come out and pray once a month, uh, men to pray at the dawn treaders. And it's not as though everybody's got to do it. and everybody. You, that's the thing. That's the terrible agonizing truth of Christianity is you can do anything you want. You really are saved by grace. But the fact is, he saved us to live under his lordship, to seek his will, to get delight in running in the paths of those grace, of that grace that makes us better people, makes us more useful to him. Uh, the, the men, we, we have an invitation open to all the men to come out at 5.30 in the morning on once a month on Saturday. We do it at 5.30 to 8.30 just to move it out of the main time of when the family is up and about, unless you have very small children, they already are up at 6. And uh, what a delight to get out to pray once a month with some other men. And I'm sure there are some people that they really have a conflict and they just can't, but there are others that just don't want to, and they the Lord gives them that freedom too, and it's not as though somebody's any better because they go, but those are the kind of things that maybe, it takes some effort to get out to Sunday school, so I mean, your feet got you this far, and there's some empty chairs of people that didn't make it this far, your feet, one of the ways that you rain on the parade of Christianity is you you quit participating. You just kind of back off. They've asked me to serve as a, as a deacon or an elder, and I think, oh, no, I've just got too much, too many things going on. Whatever it is, something with the ladies. And you realize, when you really look at your motives, you realize, no, I'm just, I'm just backing off, and I don't really have any good reason to. Let's see the second thing we notice with her in verse 16. So she's up in the balcony, and it says, she looks out the window, and she saw King David leaping and dancing. What should she have seen? 
She should have seen the ark arriving. She should have realized this is such a significant spiritual moment. But instead of seeing what was really important, she sees something that's not that big of a deal. She just doesn't like it. I mean, we all have our preferences, don't we? And some things you just don't like that color. You don't like that the way that goes with that. You don't like that the way that hair turned out. Whatever it is, you know. But those aren't the main things in life. And she looks out and sees King David leaping and dancing. She noticed the negative. Now, what was David noticing? Well, he was completely caught up in the moment that the ark was arriving, that God was showing up, that God was coming to Jerusalem. Do you realize that what you see in any given situation says a lot about you? You bring in five people in a room and then ask them 10 minutes later, what did you see? You'll get five different reports, won't you? Same room, same moment, same event, five different reports. Why? You've got five different people, five different sets of eyes, five different ways of looking at the world. When you walk into church, when you walk into your Bible study, when you walk into the Sunday school class, what do you see? One of the ways that you reign on the parade is you get more and more critical when you come into situations that you're not seeing things the way God sees them. I'm reminded of when Jesus looked out on Jerusalem and what could he have seen and what could he have thought? These rascals led by a pack of hounds that are in a short while going to beat me up and stab me, nail me to a board and laugh at me. He looks at Jerusalem and he weeps. And he says, how often I would have loved to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks. And he wept over Jerusalem. He said, they are like sheep without a shepherd. It is so easy to develop a critical eye, a critical spirit. And where does that come from? It comes from pride. Thinking, I'm better. I know more. They should be doing this. If they had just asked me, they would realize that this is a terrible idea, but they haven't asked, so I'm not going to tell them. I'm just going to criticize them from afar. And that's one of the ways, even as devout believers, that you can get sour and negative and critical. One thing that is becoming more evident to us is that how this grows over the years. And when you get to the last 10 years of your life, at least before then, you criticize, but you keep it to yourself. You know, it's kind of like, but, but the last 10 years, I don't know what it is, but somehow your ability to cover up what you're actually thinking drifts away from you. Yeah, well, some people get it, it never had any fig leaves to cover it, but uh, others that are southern and polite often lose whatever ability they had to cover up their thoughts. And because they didn't shepherd and weed the garden of their mind, they spend the last 10 years of their life hurting and destroying the very people they love the most and that love them the most. And the way you work on that is you work on it now while you're still young enough to embrace truth and to learn love. 
The third point we notice about her, also in verse 16, we see her response. So she sees King David leaping and dancing and says, you know, it's not as, oh, he's having such a good time. Bless his soul. It says, she despised him in her heart. I think, wait a minute, this is his loving bride. This is the one that had the crush on him when he killed Goliath. And now it says she despised him in her heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. And she permitted something at that moment in her heart, something deep, something negative, uh, a root of bitterness, an anger. And the same thing can happen in us. When you first get married, you're very idealistic. When you first become a Christian and join the church, you see things in a very positive way but as time goes on different realities set in different disappointments things don't live up to your expectations people hurt you they let you down they say nasty things they try to control and manipulate you and it's like you're running the gauntlet between all these things that are beating on you and satan has a plan for you at that point he is wanting you to become someone who hurts because you've been hurt and he's wanting you to become enslaved to a bitter spirit where you won't and can't forgive and where you're holding other people. Someone said unforgiveness and holding on to unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person will die. That ill will towards certain people. Not everybody. You know, I mean, in general, you view yourself as a very kind, loving, generous person. But there are a couple of people that even the mention of their name and that sourness, you're in touch with it deep in your heart. Or even if it's just an aloofness, a feeling superior. So, well, at least, I mean, I'm not perfect, but at least I don't do what that person does, say what that person does, think what that person does. And the Bible, of course, has lots of illustrations of this. The Pharisee and the tax collector, where the Pharisee says, well, at least I'm not like that guy over there um, doing pretty good. And the parable of the prodigal son wasn't about the prodigal son. It was about the older brother uh, who's uh, critical and negative and bitter about his brother. So this is another way that you and I reign on the parade of our faith, of our church, is allowing resentment and bitterness to fester in our heart. Now, we got these first three just from one verse. <laughs> but it doesn't stop there. Up until this point, David, bless his heart, is clueless. He's having a good time, praising the Lord. He's, he's in communion with God. He then gives has a gift for everybody. I mean, you know, there are probably a thousand people there, and he's come up with a gift for all of them. Uh, I think it was just some bread and some wine, but still, that's a lot of people, even if it's just potato chips you're, you're serving. And so it says in, in verse 20, but when David returned to bless his household, so he's thinking, okay, I've, I've blessed the Lord, I've blessed the people, I'm going home, we're just going to have a blessing over the whole family. And she stops him dead in his tracks. And she says, how the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants' maids as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers 
himself. And if you read through the rest of the story, you realize it never mentions that he ever got around to blessing the family. With what she said, she stopped the blessing at her door. Sarcasm can be one of the most insidious things that affects a person's life. The old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, that is one of the most untrue statements <laughs> ever uttered. Some of the things that have hurt you more than anything else are the words that have been spoken over your life. Proverbs 12.18 says, Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And in New American Standard says, He who speaks rashly cuts like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And we end up saying things we shouldn't, and we say them in ways that we shouldn't. It's not just what you say. It's how you say it, too. Some people try to excuse and say, well, my family was just that way. That's just the way we talk. And I wasn't meaning anything by it. He says, well, it, you know, you can mean it when you stab somebody or not really mean it when you stab somebody. They're still stabbed, you know. The, the one that judges your communication isn't you. It's the one that received it. And in Ephesians 4, it talks about, let no unwholesome word even come out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, that it might bring a blessing to those who hear it. And the thing with sarcasm and misuse of your tongue is it, it grows with time. I think that's one of the reasons why God as far as just our development and sin in general, is one of the reasons why God didn't let Adam and Eve eat from the tree of life after they fell into sin. Because you don't want sinners to live forever because they get better and better and better at sinning. Their speech gets worse and worse. Their mind gets more and more perverse. Their ability to lie gets worse. Their pride gets worse. Another thing that affects us with our tongue is our humor. And sometimes we will veil the knife with humor, saying, well, I was just kidding. One of the ways you judge your humor is who pays the price of your humor. Some people make jokes at their own expense. President Ford, one time, when asked about his golf game, he says, I'm, it's getting better. I'm not hitting as many spectators. Well, he paid the price for that humor. But other people always make jokes at other people's expense. So that's the fourth way of reigning on the parade, is having a sharp tongue, a sarcastic way of communicating that hurts other people. And the fifth and last is the mind. We notice in verse 5, so we've, we've covered the feet. The eyes, the heart, the tongue, and now the mind. Verse 20, she says, He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants' maids, as any vulgar fellow would. What was she focused on? Other people, not God. She says, boy, I'm sure you really embarrassed God today. 
She says, you messed up our image in front of everybody. Never mentions anything about God. And she felt like there are certain things that are presidential and there are certain things that are not presidential, and that was not presidential. I mean, that is just, that is an embarrassment. But the, the focus on public opinion, what will they say? And I want you to notice the result of this in verse 23. It doesn't actually say it's the result, but it implies it. When all of this is done, it says, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. She lived a sterile life, and there was nothing worse for a woman back in those days to go childless. In those times, considered her, her main purpose in life was to have children. And so to not have children meant that God had not been kind to you and wasn't happy with you. And that's why a lot of the stories in the Bible are about barren women that, God, that prayed and then God gave them children. But she was sterile for the rest of her life. 2 Corinthians 10, 5. 2 Corinthians 10, 5 talks about this battle in the mind. It says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And in this phrase, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ taking every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. How, how can you affect your mind? It's one thing with my feet or, or my hands or even my tongue, my communication. I can just discipline myself. But the mind and the heart are complicated, sort of intangible, aren't they? But the Bible teaches us that there are some things that you can do that affect your mind, the purity of your mind, the obedience of your thoughts, and that's to memorize Scripture, meditate on Scripture, get that input from, from God's Word and God's truth. What the Bible gives us is the way God sees things, His perspective on things. And then prayer, to learn, learn to pray. You know, prayer is the first thing you ever learn to do in a Christian home. When you have a child who's just one. I mean, some of you have had already experiences where your child wants to say the blessing, and really all they can say is amen. And they don't really get that out either. But uh, I've seen some children, they'll just bow their head and mumble since they can't really talk yet, but they hear other people do it. So they'll kind of, amen, you know? I mean, they can't read. They certainly can't preach. They can't go out and do a lot of good works. They're just, you're just trying to keep them out of trouble and keep them from killing themselves and their brother. But they can pray. And the last thing you'll be able to do in your life, when your sight is gone, when your hearing is gone, when you're stuck in a bed, when you've got a breathing tube down your throat, IV in your arm and that beeping going on, the last thing you will be able to do is pray. And so prayer is one of the most important things you can ever learn to do. And most people don't give it a whole lot of thought. It's a fire extinguisher. We have a fire extinguisher. Every once in a while I think about, I've got to remember where this thing is because if, you know, if we ever get in a fire, I could just imagine I'll run all over the places. Where is that thing? And for a lot of people, prayer is that way. It's very, very low on their priority list. 
but to learn to pray. To pray with delight, to pray with perseverance, to give time to prayer. You know, when you go through the busy time of your life, say, I'm too busy to pray. You know what happens later on? People have plenty of time later on, they still don't pray. That's not why you're not praying. We don't pray, there's something else that's wrong. Because prayer is our life breath. And that's one of the things that will greatly affect your the development of your mind and your thoughts. So in conclusion, I just want us to encourage each other to not degenerate into a stumbling block. I think one of the things after you've been a Christian 5, 10, 15, 20 years is you think, I thought I was going to be further along by this point. It says, well, cheer up, it could get even worse. You may not have become as good as you could be, but you can become a whole lot worse than you even are now. It's not growth, it's not a given when it comes to maturity in the Christian life. But the good news is you don't have to be negative, critical, distant, sarcastic, bitter. You choose to be. And it's time to humble ourselves and hurry home. David was like a little boy. Here he was the king. Here he was a grown man. And he's acting like a child. And Jesus said, that's who the kingdom of heaven belongs to. Can you really express extravagant worship to God? And with the people that are troubling you and the negative thoughts and you think, well, it's just this situation and it's just this moment and it's just this and it's just this, it's not just that. It's just you. It's just you. Jesus walked through this same world and he's ready to walk through it with you. I want to draw our attention just as in closing at the, uh, this last passage in Proverbs 4. If you have your Bible, look at Proverbs 4, 20 through 27, because these same five things we looked at of, of feet of eyes, of heart, of tongue, and of mind. They're all in Proverbs, these few verses in Proverbs 4. Proverbs 4.20. He says, My son, pay attention to what I say. Listen closely to my words. That's the mind. He says, focus your mind on what I'm telling you. In verse 23, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. That's talking about the heart. Put away perversity from your mouth. Talking about the tongue. Keep Corrupt talk far from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you, the eyes. Make level paths for your feet and take only ways that are firm. Do not swerve to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. All five of those things. Where Michael went astray, but where David was right on target, are right there in written by, years later, by David's son. So are you reigning on the parade? You know, your sourness and my sourness can affect others. It does affect. In fact, it permeates the atmosphere in your home. And it will result in sterility in your life. But God's much more ambitious than that for you. He completely believes in you because he loves you. You've only gotten this far because of him. So this isn't. A time to think, oh, well, that's the end of that. He says, no, this is the beginning. When he speaks to us and when he touches us in our heart with conviction and sorrow that we're not where we ought to be, it's only because he's saying, roll away the stone, Lazarus, come forth. 
I've made you for much more than what you've accomplished so far. If you will wake up and truly be sorry in your heart and say, Lord, I want to change. And you can count on it that if he's brought you to a place today where he's touched you with a couple of things, he's also going to bring up a couple of things in the next couple of weeks of opportunities to move ahead. And just ask him, Lord, when that time comes, when they say, well, you come to this Bible study or you want to come and pray with us at this or whatever it is, Lord, remind me <laughs> from that tender moment in Sunday school when I was thinking about that, that this is my chance for my feet, for my eyes, for my heart, for my tongue, for my mind to move forward instead of slide backward, to grow instead of to rot, to get a little more fired up instead of a little colder. Are you always raining on the parade? Wouldn't it be wonderful someday to say, when that person walks in, they bring the sunshine of God's face. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we all struggle with negativity. Critical spirit. We've struggled with sarcasm, feeling superior. Being lazy. Looking at things we shouldn't. Thinking things that dishonor you. But today as we've looked at how David loved you with everything he had, even though he was an imperfect person and later on made some big mistakes too. But you said, this is the type of life that brings me honor, that brings me pleasure. This is the kind of person I can relate closely to. Lord, we want to be that kind of person. We want you to find in us the heart that you found in David. A heart that says, I'm so sorry for the things I did wrong. A heart that says, I want to grow. I, I don't, I'm not satisfied with where I'm at. Lord, help us not to be raining on the parade, but let your, your light fill our lives and spill over to our families, to our church, to, to the people around us. Thank you so much that you live and that you live in us. And we give you praise today in Jesus' name. Amen. for joining us on Bringing Truth to Life. If the message has encouraged you, please subscribe and give us a review. This helps more people find our podcast. We hope you'll join us again for the next podcast of Bringing Truth to Life.